0: The dogs are face first in the kofta and the flourless chocolate cake that I had made. It's all over the floor. Guests are arriving in 20 minutes. And I placed an order for the oyster mushroom shawarma. And that took the place of the main dish that I had labored over for days.
1: From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, And this is Schmaltzy. Personal stories about food and the people behind them. Today on Schmaltzy, we have one of the most recognizable voices in radio on the show, Ari Shapiro. Ari is an award-winning host of NPR's All Things Considered, and their daily news podcast, Consider This. I've listened to Ari on the radio for so many years, and I have to admit, I was a little nervous. But he was a dream to talk to. First, Ari will share one of his own stories from his new book, The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening. Then we'll chat about his impressive radio career, his days as a Hebrew school teacher, and much more. Here's Ari.
0: I was hoping to find a job during a dinner party. My NPR internship was wrapping up in the spring of 2001, and I had no real prospects for what came next. I had already applied for a few positions in public relations and at nonprofit organizations, a process that had gone nowhere. I'd had a dismal interview for an entry-level job in a senator's office where my ambivalence about Congress might have torpedoed my chances. I was thinking about looking into graduate school in something or other. I hadn't quite nailed down what exactly. Then, My boss, NPR matriarch Nina Totenberg, had an idea. She knew that I loved to cook and that my living situation as her unpaid intern hadn't exactly allowed me to spread my culinary wings. I went home every evening to a one-room apartment that I was sharing with a lesbian I had found on Craigslist. I slept on her pull-out sofa bed, and we shared a half-size refrigerator. So no, I wasn't having many adventures in the kitchen. Why don't I hire you to cook for a dinner party that I'll throw at my house, Nina said. You'll also join us for dinner, and I'll invite a bunch of guests who might be able to offer you jobs. She had never actually tasted my cooking, so this was a true leap of faith on her part. In my parents' household, Nina Totenberg was a celebrity on par with Meryl Streep, so she was more than just my first boss. She was a larger-than-life trailblazer who'd shown an interest in me and my career at a moment when I was hitting walls everywhere else. And now, beyond merely offering me advice on next steps, she was creating a scenario that could perhaps give me a legitimate career. Nina's guest list included former Deputy Attorney General Jamie Gorelick and Congressman John Dingell. The powerful Michigander, Dingle, attended with his wife, Debbie, who would go on to win John's house seat after his death in 2019. I spent days weighing possible menus and landed on Salmon Wellington, a riff on the retro classic Beef Wellington. It was a complicated recipe involving salmon fillets individually wrapped in puff pastry. It would be a stretch for me, but I wanted to impress these people. Cooking for any dinner party makes me a bit nervous. Part of the magic of playing in the kitchen is casting culinary spells, and sometimes they fail. No matter how many times you've practiced the incantations, add a guest list of powerful Washington VIPs you've never met, and it becomes more nerve-wracking. Layer on top of that, the fact that this particular dinner was hosted by my boss and that my future job prospects hinged on its success, and, well, if I hadn't been concerned about keeping my wits sharp, I would have downed a glass or two of wine over the sink. As the guests arrived, I said a prayer to the kitchen gods, removed my apron, and joined the fray. I had set out a cheese and charcuterie plate. Congressman Dingle was bringing a cracker to his mouth when an oily black glob of olive tapenade oozed off the crisp and plopped onto Nina's expensive rug. He scolded himself, apologizing as he dabbed at the smudge with soda water. Nina's husband, David Rhines, leaned over and whispered in my ear, you've just witnessed the humanization of an icon. I breathed more easily. The biggest hitch of dinner was one that Nina had predicted early in the day. The salmon wellingtons were enormous. I'd been cooking for my own appetite, that of a 6 6'3", 22-year-old, And most of the guests didn't come close to finishing. Not the worst kitchen offense I had ever committed, and at least it tasted good. I went big on dessert, too, making cherry shortcakes on homemade biscuits threaded with dark chocolate and Kirsch whipped cream. As the guests fought drowsiness and stared down the final bites, Nina announced, As you all know, the food you've eaten tonight was prepared by Ari here. He's one of the best interns I've ever had. He needs a job and not as a chef. I wanted to kiss her hand. It was a noble effort, and I was grateful to Nina, but it didn't work. The salmon hooked zero job offers. Part of me wished that I had put as much effort into my professional pitch as I had into the meal, but another part wasn't entirely sure I wanted what Nina was trying to serve up for me. I cared about people, how they lived, and what motivated them. I wanted work that would allow me to keep caring about the world in that way. And I wasn't sure I would find that as a low-level aide on Capitol Hill.
1: Wow, what a treat thank you so much for sharing that with us. Oh,
0: it's so fun to be able to share these stories with total strangers as opposed to my husband who's bored of hearing them a million (laughs) times over.
1: (laughs) Glad to help. When we just heard you now, I was really transported to thinking about some dinners that I've cooked and how much pressure that is.
0: Look, I love to host a dinner party. I think the fear of failure is actually so low risk that, like, it doesn't matter. If the food turns out bad, you can order a pizza, you can make scrambled eggs. But this was maybe the most high-stakes dinner party I've ever been a part of.
1: So you still entertain to this day?
0: Oh, all the time. And one of my favorite things to do is just invite friends over, go out into the garden, pick things, and decide on the fly what we're going to make for dinner together.
1: Wow. As someone trapped deep within the concrete jungle of New York, that (laughs)
0: Sounds like a dream. You could have a little herb box on your windowsill. There's always room for something.
1: Definitely, definitely. So you grew up in Fargo, North Dakota.
0: Lived there till I was eight and then moved to Portland, Oregon, yeah.
1: So what was the earliest memories and like entertaining that your family did?
0: We had Shabbat dinner every Friday night. And so we would often have guests and it was variations on the same Shabbat dinner menu. Like from Passover to Rosh Hashanah, my parents would barbecue the chicken outdoors on the grill and put vegetables underneath the grill grate to catch the drippings. And then from Rosh Hashanah to Passover, they would roast the chicken in the oven and make matzo ball soup. And so it was like ingrained in my head that Rosh Hashanah was the first matzo ball soup of the year and Pesach was the last matzo ball soup of the year. And my family even kept kosher in Fargo. So we got our meat delivered once a month on a freezer truck from Chicago that would park in the synagogue parking lot. There were actually two shuls in Fargo back in those days in the 80s. And we had this big deep freezer in our garage where we kept all of our meat. And my mother would make challah from scratch every week. Wow. Which growing up in Fargo didn't strike me as an incredible feat of culinary wizardry. But in hindsight, I'm aware of just what extreme lengths my parents had to go to to keep kosher in Fargo in the 80s.
1: What brought them there?
0: They both had jobs at the university there, NDSU, North Dakota State. They met in Minneapolis, and they lived in Minneapolis for 10 years, which is where my older brother was born. And then by the time they had me and my younger brother, we were in Fargo.
1: But you said the community was very small there.
0: Small, but so tight-knit. I mean, my dad still goes back to Fargo annually for a fishing trip And the people who were my parents' friends back in those days are people they're still in touch with today. So I think there tends to be a truism that in small communities, the Jewish community might be a little more— tight and committed because you actually have to work to define yourself in contrast to the majority. And and oddly, when we moved to Portland, where there was a much bigger Jewish community and there were more synagogues and kosher meat was more available, I felt like our degree of observance sort of lessened a little bit. You know, we still kept kosher. We still had Shabbat dinner, but it just felt like it wasn't quite as much work. But I think when you have to really work hard to set yourself apart as Jews in a, a town like Fargo— you sort of commit to it maybe more than you do when you're surrounded by other Jews.
1: What do you think your sibling or parents would say about, like, the community growing up there?
0: I think Midwesterners actually are authentically really nice. I realize I'm painting with a very broad brush here. But people in Fargo were just very kind and neighborly and sweet and warm. You know, there was this woman in her 90s named Sophie Desick, who we would go and catch carp in the Red River, and she would make gefilte fish out of the carp that we caught for (gasps) Pesach. Wow. Yeah, and she would make mandelbread, which we called commish bread. And my mother still makes mandelbread from Sophie Desick's recipe. She has, of course, since passed away. But I remember in the basement of the shul after Saturday morning services, having pickled herring. And there was old Joe Paper who would pass out dum-dum lollipops. Like, just such kind of warm, homey memories, many of which are tied to food.
1: I still can't go over the (laughs) fish-to-table situation. (laughs)
0: Yeah, turning fresh-caught carp into gefilte fish.
1: I mean, that's the old way.
0: This is sacrilegious to say, but I, as a child, preferred the stuff from the jar. I always thought the fresh stuff was a little too sweet. Give me the Manischewitz stuff.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a tough one all around, I think.
0: My husband and I still host Passover seders. One year, instead of buying gefilte fish, I decided to just sort of make like Thai fish cakes, which I thought could be both a stand-in for gefilte fish and a sort of, you know, Main course for the people who didn't eat meat, an appetizer for those who did. And I think once you start imagining gefilte fish as a variation on the entire world of fish cakes that ranges from the crab cakes to Thai fish cakes to any other, you know, seasoning, spicing combination you can think of, suddenly it becomes a little less frightening and weird and kind of there are more opportunities for deliciousness.
1: Well. I think you, from what I can tell, had some interesting jobs after college.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was a barista the summer they introduced the Frappuccino. I was really popular among my friends because I had the hookup for free Frappuccinos.
1: Well, you must have been extremely popular.
0: I mean, not because of my personality, but the Frappuccinos helped.
1: (laughs) I used to work in hospitality, and I always find it's the job that prepared me the most for everything else in this world. Like being customer facing, having to kind of get yourself out of those situations with grace.
0: I loved being a waiter. Somebody walks in and they are hungry. And when they leave, they are no longer hungry. Yeah. And if only every fix in life were as easy as that. And being the waiter who gets to facilitate that transformation felt to me like a superpower. Like you've got a problem. I know how to fix it. Here's a plate of delicious food. You're welcome. I did theater as a kid, and it just felt like a performance.
1: I definitely love that aspect of it. I felt like as soon as we opened the doors, like the curtain would rise. Yes. Every night. Yes. And I love that. So that sounds like a good gig. What about Hebrew School Teacher? Is that true?
0: Oh, yeah. That was partly how I paid my way through college. That was when I moved to Washington, D.C. for that unpaid internship with Nina Totenberg. I taught Hebrew school on the weekends. I tutored kids in Hebrew. I didn't do bar mitzvah tutoring, but that was a key part of my keeping myself afloat in those early days.
1: If you had to go back to any of those jobs for a day, do you think you could hack it right now?
0: Well, (laughs) not to in any way disparage my barista brethren, but my sense is that these days, the Starbucks scenario is a little bit more plug and play.
1: Mm, Okay.
0: And also, I think if I were to get laid off from NPR tomorrow and the entire journalism world imploded, I think I could be very happy as a waiter. You have to enjoy meeting others' needs. And that's something that I like.
1: Yeah, I think it's about... Taking care of people.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's a much better way of putting it. That's a much better way of putting it.
1: So, thanks for taking me down memory lane a little bit. I want to talk about this book. I loved it.
0: I'm so glad. Thank you.
1: You look very chic and contemplative over here.
0: So, the cover shows me in the back of a pickup truck in a leather jacket driving through some mountains. And what I love about it is that the mountains could truly be anywhere. Like, the book takes you from Florida to Iraq and beyond. And I feel like the mountains could be in Iraq or, well, the mountains couldn't be in Florida. But they were actually in Malibu. I was covering a forest fire. And that's when my producer Kat Lonsdorf snapped that photograph on her iPhone.
1: So your day-to-day at NPR is about telling other people's stories, kind of giving them the platform. What made you want to write this book from your perspective, essentially?
0: I realized that over my time as a journalist, the people who I've met have shaped me, not all of them, but some of them have really kind of like, you know, snagged in my heart and stuck around. And similarly, the person I am has shaped the stories that I've told. And so hosting a radio show every day, sometimes it feels like I put myself in a box because it's not about me and it's not supposed to be about me. But After a couple decades of doing this, I wanted to kind of like open the box and explore what was inside. And so in a way, this almost feels like a memoir in part told through the stories of others, but it is also about sort of testing the assumptions we make that as journalists we're supposed to be a universal stand-in for uh, any person, that we represent the view from nowhere that we pursue objectivity at all costs, at the sacrifice of our own identity. And so over the course of a book, (laughs) I explore them from a lot of different angles. And it helped me better understand how my journalism has shaped me and how who I am has shaped the journalism I practice.
1: What I love is how you really just bring us to these pretty high-stakes situations. Some of them are dangerous. Some of them are really emotional. And Mm -hmm. I think for me, the best books are always about when I read them, I can imagine myself being there.
0: I'm so glad this succeeded at that. Thank you. I want people reading this book to feel like, oh, that was an adventure. That was an exciting moment. That was tragic. That was breathtaking. But I want there to be a deeper layer in each of these essays, in each of these chapters, where something slightly bigger and deeper and more universal comes through as well.
1: I was definitely excited to dive in. You covered food a lot in your work. Is that something you kind of try to like sneak in a little bit? Or do you think it's because you grew up in the cooking house? Well,
0: clearly my parents every night made food in a way that was memorable and meaningful to me. My mother did the vast majority of the cooking for a family of five, you know, three boys who ate a lot. And so it wasn't fussy or particular, but it was homemade food every night. And the thing that's always fascinated me about food as a journalist is that wherever you go in any era, there is always food, whether it is, you know, MREs, meals ready to eat in a war zone that soldiers are eating that have been shipped over from thousands of miles away, or whether it is a presidential banquet as I'm a White House correspondent covering a presidential visit to some far off country food is always there. And what the food is, in some ways, tells you something about the people and the context. But also, I personally read cookbooks for fun. I like thinking about food. I like talking about food. I like cooking and eating food. And so, yeah, I do stories about food, both because I think it's strategic and useful as a narrative journalistic tool, and because I'm interested in it.
1: Yeah. We really find in our work how powerful the stories are of these traditions around foods that people grew up with Mm -hmm. that they've carried to the next generation, but also made their own. And it's just a really, really extremely emotional way to connect with your family.
0: Yeah. It's funny. You're reminding me of a moment when I went to Ukraine in 2000, was it 14 or 15? It was just as the separatists in the East were beginning to take over cities like Donetsk and Luhansk. And I arrived in Kiev just intending to do some feature stories because, of course, we didn't know that this violent insurgency was about to begin. But I remember my first day in Ukraine going to the hotel buffet and thinking, oh, this is Jewish food. You know, it was like... Blintzes and dumplings and kasha and borscht. And then of course I realized, oh, wait, no, what I think of as Jewish food is just food from this part of the world that my ancestors happen to come from. I mean, my ancestry is a little bit more complicated. There's a bit of Greece and Turkey and the Middle East, et cetera. But a good chunk of my family comes from that part of the world that at various points in time was Russia, Poland, Ukraine, et cetera. And so that recognition that what I think of as Jewish food is actually particular to a region rather than a religion.
1: Yeah. I mean, I grew up in New York, but I grew up in a very culturally Jewish way, not really religious. Mm -hmm. And even though my parents were into cooking, I was fortunate enough to travel a little bit when I was a child, I still had a very, very narrow view of what Jewish food is. Yeah. Everything that I've learned since being part of Jewish Food Society has just really changed my perception of what Jewish food is.
0: Yeah. Well, because Jews are a nomadic people. We're like a diasporic people. Exactly. We're all over the world. And so you go to India, and the Jewish food, of course, is going to be different from the Jews of Morocco.
1: And Jews kind of have created their own micro-cuisines based on Mm -hmm. the local food customs of where they're living. Yeah. And then usually informed or shaped by holidays and kosher laws.
0: Yeah, I did a segment for All Things Considered once with Joe Nathan, the legendary Jewish food writer.
1: Yes, legendary.
0: And, you know, I grew up with a chirosat that was mostly apples and walnuts with raisins and sweet wine. But we made all of these different chirosats from all of these different parts of the world, all of which sort of had the texture of, like, you know, brick mortar that it's supposed to represent. But completely different ingredients, flavor profiles, just a huge, huge range that I never experienced growing up. I've got a Joe Nathan cookbook that I turn to when I'm trying to figure out, like, oh, if I want to make a different kugel for Pesach this year, what are my options? Like, that's where I'll go for that. I try not to be overly fussy about my cooking. But yeah, like, if I'm going to cook for a large number of people, you need to have a plan of attack. Although, <laughs> although for Passover this past year.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We had about 30 people coming over.
1: Whoa, that's a big Seder.
0: Yeah. During the pandemic, we got two wonderful dogs. And I decided that I was going to kind of go in a vaguely Syrian direction with the menu for Pesach. And so I decided to make kibba out of Impossible Burger. And I grilled them, and I brushed them with pomegranate molasses. And I used this amazing spice from Burlap and Barrel, which is this sort of small artisanal spice company.
1: Know them and love them.
0: They're amazing, right? Yeah. There had been a COVID spike, and at the last minute, the weather looked good. We were like, let's just do dinner outside. So we set up all of these different tables outside. We dragged our dining room table outside, set the table for 30, Half an hour before guests were supposed to arrive, like a rainstorm rolled in and we're like, oh no, we actually had a huge tent in our basement that we were like, okay, we can set up the tent and protect the table. My husband and I were like frantically setting up the tent 30 minutes before the guests arrived for Pesach. I realized as we're setting up the tent in the pouring rain, oh my God, the kofta are on the edge of the kitchen counter and the dogs are not shut away somewhere, Mike was like, no, we have to protect the table. We have to set up the tent. We set up the tent. I go inside. The dogs are face first in the kofta and the flourless chocolate cake that I had made. It's all over the floor. Guests are arriving in 20 minutes. I went on Uber Eats and I placed an order for 10 orders of the oyster mushroom shawarma, it arrived, and that took the place of the main dish that I had labored over for days. Thank you to our dogs.
1: Wow. One, were the dogs okay?
0: Oh, they were totally fine. They had the best day of their lives. (laughs) They actually didn't really eat the chocolate cake. I realize chocolate is dangerous for dogs, Yeah, but they were more intent on what they thought was meat. Joke's on them. It wasn't actually meat. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. As someone who listens to you often and listens to NPR, a lot of what's talked about is very serious, what you cover. Yeah. It can be very sad, emotional, all of that. It sounds like cooking is something that you do to decompress, but what are some of the other things that you do to kind of separate these two parts of your world?
0: Cooking is definitely one thing. I do yoga. I ride my bike to and from work, and I find that that physical just activity, it's only like a 10-minute bike ride. I live close to the office. But that kind of physical transition in and out of the workday is really helpful. And then I found that walking the dogs before in work ended up serving that function for me. And then, you know, I also sing with a band on the side, which, (laughs) which helps. It's so fun. Amazing. I love that band. It's such a surreal fantasy. I can't believe I get to do it.
1: I saw that you recently wore a New York Times crossword puzzle clue. Uh, What went down when you saw that?
0: Here's the real T. The letter combination A-R-I is very useful for crossword puzzle writers. It is three common letters, two of which are vowels. So that letter combination shows up in crossword puzzles all the time. A number of times, the clue will be me because there are not thousands of Ari's in the world who are well known but what has only ever happened once which blew my mind is that Ari Shapiro was the answer in the crossword puzzle A R I S H A P I R O that is not convenient for crossword puzzle writers and the fact that my full first and last name appeared in there was like I just felt like it's all going to be a disappointment after this I have peaked this is the pinnacle I'm done People got angry at me for tweeting about it first thing in the morning. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. You were allowed to tweet about it immediately.
1: At the very least. <laughs> okay. We have something here at Schmaltzy. And it's perfect because we talked a lot about Passover. The four questions. A speed round.
0: Ooh. Okay.
1: Hamentaschen or rugelach? Rugelach. Favorite Yiddish word?
0: Ooh. The one that comes to mind right now is Shpilkas.
1: That's a good one. Locks or whitefish?
0: Whitefish because it's more sustainable.
1: Your dream dinner guest?
0: Tony Kushner. Ooh. Because I love that he can write a Pulitzer Prize winning play like Angels in America and also the script to a massive blockbuster Steven Spielberg film of which he's done several and also a musical like Caroline or Change. I've never actually had a proper legitimate sit down meal with the man. I would love to. T. Kush, call me.
1: Ari, this was so fun. I had such a good
0: time. It's been a joy.
1: That was Ari Shapiro. To learn more about Ari and where you can get his new book, Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening, go to arishapiro.org. I absolutely loved this book. Highly recommend and if you like what you heard, be a mensch and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to catch Schmaltzy live? Join us on May 3rd at Littlefield in Brooklyn. We'll have tasty food and stories from moth host Ophira Eisenberg, recess therapy host and creator Julian Shapiro Barnum, and comedian Alison Leiby. Tickets and details at jewishfoodsociety.org. Hope to see you there! Schmalti is produced by the Jewish Food Society in partnership with Pod People and Made with Love in NYC. Our executive producer is Nama Shafi, and our theme music is by Yuval Semma. Special thanks to the team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Madison Lesby, Robin Gelfenbein, Carter Wogan, and Michael Aquino. I'm your host, Amanda Dell. Thanks for listening. See you next time.